0: Hi, my name is Doug Hooley. I wrote a book a few years ago titled Watch. It's based on the talk that Jesus gave to his disciples only a couple of days before he was put to death on a Roman cross. Knowing his time was growing short, what did Jesus consider of the utmost importance to talk to his disciples about? It was his return. A subject that frightens many pastors to talk about and that has led to a great deal of controversy in the church. Yet, the return of Jesus is at the very core of a follower of Jesus' hope. My goal with the book, and now this podcast, is to make crystal clear what I believe Jesus wants us to know about his return. Jesus was very clear in his message. Many Christians living during the period of time just before his return will be deceived, will be persecuted, and will fall away from the faith. Many who claim to be Christians will one day renounce their faith and betray those they once called brothers and sisters in the Lord. Many will deceive themselves into believing they are servants of Jesus, when in fact it will be Jesus himself that ends up sentencing them to hell. Alarming as this is, the deception Jesus warned about already exists in the church today. It's the root cause of apathy, and acceptance of myths in regard to prophetic scriptures. What are we, as professed followers of Jesus, to do? Jesus gives us the answer we are to watch. The words Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives and related parallel scriptures provide enough details to put together a comprehensive picture of end times events and the things we must do to avoid deception. Today, as 2021 gets underway, deception is running rampant. Setting the scene for this warning, the Passover in Jerusalem was approaching. Jesus knew his time on earth was growing short. While his death grew near, Jesus gave his disciples what he considered to be the most crucial information necessary as they would transition from his physical daily presence to what we now all await, the ultimate day of his return. Almost 2,000 years later, Jesus' message has become even more urgent. As every day passes and his return grows ever closer, the same information he gave his original disciples is even more crucial for modern-day disciples of Christ. How tragic that one of Satan's greatest victories in our time is that many in the church avoid studying the very information that Jesus thought was so important for his followers throughout time to know. While many that decide what Christians will hear on Sunday mornings, a.k.a. pastors preachers, they may avoid the topic of end times prophecy, millions of people, both within the church and outside of it, are actively searching for answers about what we call the end of the world. Tragically, in the absence of sound biblical teaching, there are numerous purveyors of misinformation that are providing people with false answers. Our internet-rich, 21st-century, conspiracy-theory-loving Western world culture has given rise to a number of authors, Christian radio show hosts, and bloggers over the past four decades that have engaged in making bad predictions in regards to the return of Jesus. This has given the study of Bible prophecy a bad reputation. Those who continue to diligently study such things are often dismissed as, quote, end times nuts, unquote. To be fair, I've found that some very passionate people whose principles of biblical interpretation fall outside the envelope of sound hermeneutical practices, uh, hermeneutical, the way we, uh, the rules that we use to study our Bible, they are indeed end times nuts. Many well-intentioned people within the church can be heard saying things like, "Uh, The church will be long gone by the time anything bad happens. Most prophecies were written for the benefit of the ones who will be, quote, left behind, unquote. Or, maybe you've heard this one, Jesus was speaking to the Jews when he said those things on the Mount of Olives, not Christians. Or, all of those things Jesus was talking about already took place in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Those prophecies don't concern us. You know, there seem to be many reasons some people try to get others to avoid studying and understanding prophetic scriptures. Today, both intentionally and unintentionally, deceptive voices assure followers of Jesus that it is not important to understand what's contained in the Bible regarding the end of the age. Yet, from Jesus' very own words, which make up the Olivet Discourse, he calls out to his church with the exact opposite message. While many Christians concern themselves primarily with how to get along better in this world here and now, Jesus strongly commands his servants to live for and watch for the future day of his return. Many Christians are confused about what will happen at the end of the age, and what their role in eternity will be. This confusion comes from a lack of knowledge A lack of knowledge of the truth leaves a vacuum in a person's life. That vacuum leaves them wide open to false teaching. Receiving, accepting, and then passing on deceptive teaching makes one a well-intentioned teacher of deception. None of this need occur. According to Jesus on the Mount of Olives, one day many false teachers, false prophets, and people claiming to represent him will pervade our world and lead people astray. This will happen inside and outside the church. A bad guy that people have labeled the Antichrist will show up on the world scene one day. This will really be unexpected by many Christians who expect to be, quote, raptured, unquote, prior to the Antichrist coming to power. Out of ignorance, some may even support and place themselves in alliance with this individual. This will be an eternally bad error. The Antichrist will be a world leader with a great military backing and will eventually hunt down and persecute descendants from the tribes of Israel and the followers of Jesus. He'll fancy himself some sort of a God and the penalty for not worshiping him will be death. Because some Christians ignored the warnings of Jesus they'll have totally missed that this situation will occur. They won't be prepared for this scenario. The results, according to Jesus, are that a large number of people who say they were Christians will fall away from the faith. In the midst of wars, out-of-control inflation, persecution, and famine-related death, the sun will suddenly go dark. The moon will lose its light. The stars will appear to fall from the sky and there will be a worldwide earthquake which causes the seas to roar. These things will happen immediately before Jesus shows up in power and great glory. Jesus will send out his angels to gather the elect, those both dead and alive in Christ, from the four corners of the earth. At that time, those who have said, Jesus is their Lord, but our servants of Jesus in name only, will deeply regret their life decisions. Their fate will be the same as those who never believed in Jesus at all. It's only after the church has been rescued from the planet that God will begin to pour out his judgment, what the Bible calls wrath, on the earth. The elect of God, his church, were not appointed to suffer this wrath. Things will get really bad for those who are left on the earth, except for a limited number of descendants of the tribes of Israel who will receive supernatural protection from God. You may have been taught a much different scenario pertaining to the end of the age than the one that I just conveyed to you. That's okay. However, there's a great deal riding on your beliefs. If any part of the scenario I just conveyed to you is true, it warrants your consideration, especially regarding what Jesus had to say on the Mount of Olives. There is no greater thing for the born-again disciple of Christ to look forward to than being united with our Messiah and Savior, Jesus. Yet, despite the details given in Scripture, most born-again disciples of Christ are almost completely ignorant of how that entire scene will play out. Before ascending to heaven, Jesus established a perpetual Christian educational system when He commanded His disciples to, Go and make disciples of others. In creating this system, Jesus expanded the role of his students into that of also being teachers. Jesus did not give his disciples discretion in the curriculum. He told his disciples to teach all things that he had commanded them. All things includes what Jesus said to the original disciples on the Mount of Olives regarding his second coming. Followers of Christ have to know the prophetic scripture well enough to know what to watch for, what to be on guard against how to live a master-pleasing life, and what to teach others. This generation, in my opinion, is failing to do so. Whether you've reached the point that you're teaching others or not, this principle still applies. Once a student of Jesus, always a student of Jesus. If you've never studied the Olivet Discourse to a point of understanding the critical information your master Jesus wanted you to know about his return and the end of the age— This is a perfect time. The study of what Jesus said about his return and eternity can refocus a believer's entire life and redirect it from focusing on the things of this world to the things of the everlasting kingdom Jesus will one day bring with him from heaven. Setting your mind on things above is absolutely life-changing. The talk Jesus gave his disciples on the Mount of Olives during his final Passover week on earth has been the source of a great deal of controversy. You'll probably not agree with everything I'm going to say. However, I am convinced that if you're committed to finding truth and you carefully and prayerfully consider the points I'm going to make, your commitment to being a good, faithful, and watchful servant of the Lord Jesus will grow stronger. Jesus' words are worthy of not only a quick or even repetitive read-through, but of your close study and serious contemplation. I challenge and encourage you to do just that, not with an open mind as to what I say, but with a mind committed to God's truth. I have several different things I want to touch on before we get into the Bible passages concerned. Let's start with the who, what, where, when, and why of this topic. Jesus was still in the form of a mortal human being, and it was only two days before he would be crucified. It was time for straight and clear answers. It was on the Mount of Olives where the disciples asked Jesus when the fantastic events he had been talking about earlier would take place, and what would be the signs which would signal the end of the age, and his return to this earth. Jesus' answers came to be known as the term I've already used a few times now, the Olivet Discourse. Olivet, because the location and the answers were given on the Mount of Olives, and discourse, because what Jesus said, as recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were all comprehensive and authoritative. Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. They believed in and trusted Jesus to be the authority on the kingdom of heaven and how to gain access, through Jesus, to that kingdom. They were what we now call and the dictionary defines as Christians. Jesus was giving this group of Christians information to pass on to future Christians. Early in his talk, Jesus confirmed that he was addressing those who follow him when he said that his followers now and in the future will be hated for his name's sake. This is an important piece to understanding this passage, since many believe the Olivet Discourse was written for the benefit of Jews and not the followers of Christ. At this point in history, and for the past 2,000 years, Jews have not been widely known as followers of Christ. In fact, it was Jewish leaders that were the first to attempt to wipe out the followers of Jesus in the first century. Many Jews still consider Jesus to be one of the many false messiahs, and many consider him to be the most damaging Judaism rejects any claims that Jesus fulfilled any of the prophecies regarding their Messiah. The idea that Jews would accept the teachings of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse or be considered to be his followers in any way is without merit. It is true that Jesus was born and raised a Jew in every sense. However, it is also true that he has the unique role of being the one and only God, the God of everyone whether everyone knows it or not. As the Apostle Paul brilliantly revealed, Jesus, who was God in human form, is our high priest that made salvation possible for the entire world, not only Jews, through his sacrifice. We also know that the original religion of the twelve disciples was Judaism. Although they remained ethnically Jews, the disciples, like the Apostle Paul, parted ways with relying on the Jewish faith for their salvation, the day that they decided to follow Jesus and His teaching which says, "No one comes to the Father except through me." That's in John 14:6. This indeed made the disciples Christians. Although the disciples may have retained many of their former religious practices, they no longer were counting on the Mosaic law and animal sacrifices to seek forgiveness for their sins and reconcile themselves to God. That this reconciliation could be obtained through mercy was at the very heart of Jesus' message and was the good news delivered to all of humanity. It is the great hope of us all. The Olivet Discourse was clearly intended to include Christians as the receiver of the message it contains. Having acknowledged that, It's also clear that there is information within the Olivet Discourse that more directly pertains to the descendants of the tribes of Israel, which will be alive around the time of Jesus' return. There's no denying that. This includes all the people, Jew or Gentile, living in and around the region of Judea, with Jerusalem at its center. Although parts of the Olivet Discourse are found in three different Gospels, the Gospel according to Matthew, which contains the most comprehensive account of the Discourse, was originally written in the Hebrew language and targeted a Jewish audience. The book of Matthew appears to have been an attempt to answer the Jews' questions about Jesus, who claimed to be their Messiah. Yet, to whomever the book was originally addressed matters only as much as does the books of Ephesians and Galatians, originally being letters addressed to the people of Ephesus and Galatia. Both of those letters from the Apostle Paul contain truth that has been relied on and utilized by Christians of all times. Regardless of whom Jesus was specifically addressing on the Mount of Olives, almost all of the events that Jesus describes during the Olivet Discourse will ultimately affect the entire population of the planet. It's worth paying close attention to what the Son of God said to his disciples regarding the end of the age. Jerusalem may be the epicenter of end times events, but those events will send enormous shockwaves throughout the entire world. It's often argued that prophecy is too difficult for lay people in the church to understand. Yet, the four particular disciples Jesus addressed on the Mount of Olives were all fishermen by trade. This is no slam on fishermen. But We know that all four could likely read and write, but it was unlikely that they were very well-educated. They certainly were not religious authorities, academics, or theologians. Jesus was very perceptive, not a poor communicator, and understood he was speaking to common people. Although care must be taken to make sure we are appropriately translating what Jesus said across time, space, language, and cultural differences— God's Son intended His words to be everlasting and understood forever. That includes the prophetic scripture contained in the Olivet Discourse. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God resides within you. If you diligently seek the truth of what scripture means, through the Holy Spirit, you will find it. My personal experience is that the Holy Spirit often uses a great deal of study prayer, meditation, and time to make that happen. As background, accounts of Jesus' Olivet Discourse are found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Although the Apostle John's Gospel does not include the Olivet Discourse, John was one of the four disciples physically present when it was given. John would later be responsible for authoring the entire book of Revelation. As a side note, In Revelation, Jesus gives John the instruction to write down the things that he has seen and the things that will be. My theory uh, that I hold to pretty strongly at this point is that when John went to write these things down, probably in the 90s, AD 90s, the latter half of those, that he uh, wrote down the things that, that were in the Gospel of John and the things which will be uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, The authorship could be roughly about the same time. And so he didn't need to include in his gospel um, a big dissertation on end times events. He knew that that would be included in his uh, book of the Revelation. Uh, Anyway, Matthew, uh, whose surname was Levi— you can read that in Matthew 9.9, was a tax collector, and he was one of the original twelve disciples of Jesus. He would have been personally present with Jesus the night that the Olivet Discourse was uttered on the Mount of Olives. However, according to the book of Mark, Matthew is not one of the four specific disciples that went to Jesus, quote, privately, unquote, to ask him the questions that led to the Olivet Discourse. It's likely that one or more of the four disciples of whom Jesus was directly speaking would have conveyed what they had heard to Matthew and the rest of the disciples. However he heard it, Matthew wrote by far the most extensive account of what Jesus had to say that night. The date the book of Matthew was authored is not specifically known. The Ryrie Study Bible puts the authorship date anywhere between 50 and 90 A.D. Although disputed, the Gospel of Matthew is thought by some to be the first of the four gospels written. Mark, also known as John Mark, was the son of a relatively wealthy woman named Mary who lived in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts 12:12. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, who was the companion of the apostle Paul on some of his journeys. Mark was in and out of Paul's life until Paul's death. Mark was also a companion and friend of the apostle Peter. Peter had a front row seat to the Olivet Discourse. Mark's gospel likely contains information that he received from Peter. Undoubtedly Mark would have heard Peter recount numerous times what he had heard from Jesus. Opinions regarding the authorship dates for the book of Mark range from sixty one AD to after seventy A.D. Now Luke, he was a physician. You can read about that in Colossians four fourteen. He was a close friend and companion of the Apostle Paul. As far as we know, Luke would not have been a direct eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He's responsible for writing the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts. He accomplished documenting the life of Jesus and the beginnings of the church in the book of Acts through conducting quote an investigation unquote. He did this as an orderly attempt to provide others confidence in the gospel that they had already received. The book of Luke was written before the book of Acts, probably sometime around 60 A.D. There are many, sometimes word-for-word, similarities between the three gospel accounts of the Olivet Discourse. There's little doubt, since Luke used others as a source for his account, that he consulted with at least John Mark. In fact, Luke and Mark were in Rome together between 61 and 63 A.D., about the time that the book of Luke was probably written. Differences in the text of the three different Gospels are explained by different authorship styles and the life experiences and education that the authors brought with them. For example, Dr. Luke is said to have a little bit more of a fascination with medical issues in his Gospel than other authors. The originally intended audiences for each of the Gospels would have also played a part in some of the differences of how each Gospel was written. Differences would occur since two authors recorded witness statements rather than what they personally witnessed, and everyone views events through different lenses and from different perspectives. I worked in the law enforcement field for over 25 years. I know very well that you can ask five different eyewitnesses to tell you what they saw, and you will get five different stories, or perspectives, of the same event, and all of them could be true. The disciples may have been confused about one of the most important recognizable signs Jesus spoke of during the Olivet Discourse. Their possible confusion continues today among many modern-day disciples of Christ. From the disciples' 1st century A.D. perspectives, it may have seemed likely that Jesus was speaking of an event that had already taken place in history, yet was again going to take place in the future. It is this prophetic event That is critical to reconciling two very different views on how the Olivet Discourse should be interpreted. As a backdrop, it's important to understand some common current theological positions. The word preterist is one of those terms it's important to understand. Preterists are those who believe most of the prophecies given during the Olivet Discourse has already been fulfilled. According to them, they were fulfilled around 70 A.D., when Jerusalem and the temple fell completely to the Romans under general and soon-to-be emperor Titus. The futurist point of view is that most of the prophecies will occur in the future, surrounding the time of the second advent or coming. These two views have caused a great deal of confusion in the church in how to properly view the Olivet Discourse. In a future podcast, I'll offer an explanation on how both views can be considered for the most part, correct. During the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave clear warnings about false teachers, false messiahs, false signs, persecution, and being deceived. He talked about things that will not signal that the world is coming to an end. There are things today, both within the church and outside, people look at as apocalyptic signs that the end is close at hand. Jesus then went on to instruct his disciples exactly what to watch for, which will indeed signal the end of the age, the rapture of the church, and his coming. Jesus also warned of the difficulty of surviving the times at the end of the age. It is clear that his followers will be removed from the earth prior to God's wrath being poured out on the earth. However, There is no indication that his followers will be saved from difficult times during a period of tribulation and persecution at the hands of the Antichrist. It's important to get the differences between those two distinct periods of time. The idea that the church will go through times of persecution is consistent with what we see in history. Soon after the first time Jesus came, through this present day, A great deal of persecution of the church has taken place. Many have died horrible deaths for Jesus' name'sake. The role of sorrow and suffering in our lives is the topic of another time, but much can be said on the subject. There's no indication to be found in the Olivet Discourse that a secret and sudden gathering of Jesus' followers will occur without any warning. Signs will precede his coming, and when he shows up, it'll be really loud, out in the open, and for everyone to see. Don't worry, in a future podcast, I'll address what some know as the secret rapture, where Jesus shows up unexpectedly as a thief in the night. Jesus' one and only coming will be accompanied by the rapture of the church and the beginning of God's wrath being poured out on those that remain behind. The Olivet Discourse and the parallel passages of Scripture do not describe two separate second comings of Jesus, but one. Many systems have been devised as to how to approach Bible prophecy regarding the end of the age. Are you a pre-tribulation rapturist, a mid-trib, or post-tribber? This is the question I most often get when someone learns that I'm a student of eschatology, which in layman's terms means the study of the final events of history. Are you an amillennialist or premillennialist? That's the other question often posed. Most evangelical Christians, since the mid-1800s, when churches used to teach on this topic, have been taught to be premillennial, pre-tribulation rapturous, even if they weren't aware of these labels. I'll be talking about all of these things as we go along, but for now, the following are some greatly simplified definitions that are important to understand. All of these terms have controversy attached to them. The Tribulation period is a period of seven years in which the bulk of the prophetic events take place. It's based on scripture from the books of Daniel and Revelation. Things on earth appear to get progressively worse during this period of time. The seven-year period will be discussed in greater detail later. Premillennialism asserts that following the return of Jesus, there will be a literal 1,000-year period of time, the millennium where Jesus will rule the same earth that we are on now. It'll be a time of peace, long lives, and thriving under King Jesus. It's the premillennial point of view because we are now living before or pre the millennium. This point of view also says that the coming tribulation period will take place just before the millennium begins. Amillennialism says that there will be no literal 1,000-year period of time that Jesus rules the earth. Typically, amillennialists say that we've been living in a figurative millennium ever since Jesus came the first time. Based on this theory, Jesus is now ruling over the earth, and the church is ruling and reigning with him. Satan is currently bound up in hell and unable to influence the current inhabitants of the earth. Pre-tribulation rapturists believe that prior to any prophetic events taking place associated with the second coming, Jesus will come suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, and secretly, like a thief in the night. I talked about that just a short time ago. He will take away his true followers in an event known as the rapture. According to this view, The Church will not suffer under the Antichrist, since the Church will not be present on the earth by the time the Antichrist comes to power. This view does not recognize a difference between trials and tribulation associated with the end of the age and the wrath of God. This is the view portrayed in the popular Left Behind series by author Tim LaHaye. The mid-tribulation rapturists believe that the rapture will take place exactly halfway through the seven-year period. The church will suffer some general troubles, but not all of the prophetic events associated with the end of the age. Post-tribulation rapturists believe that the church will suffer through all of the events of the tribulation and only then be caught away into the air to meet Jesus at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, just prior to when the millennial reign of Jesus begins. I'll be discussing some of these points of view in great detail. So it's important to know the terms, but rather than approaching what is said in the Olivet Discourse from one of these preconceived system approaches, I'm going to suggest that we just see where Scripture takes us and not worry about labels. The Olivet Discourse does not contain all of the details of the second coming or the end of the age, but it contains enough details that when we compare it with other Scriptures, we can tie certain events together and get a more complete composite picture. For example, when two different passages are talking about the sun going black, the moon turning red, and the stars falling from the sky, we're probably talking about the same event, especially when it's followed by a great gathering of souls from the earth. When we find these events that tie Scripture together, it provides an opportunity to get a more complete picture since both passages will contain additional details about the same event. We'll attempt to use the Olivet Discourse as a framework in which to tie other scriptures that appear to be talking about the same events, in order to complete the picture of the end of the age. We'll see where that takes us before we apply any labels. Jesus stated, no one would know the exact day or hour of his second coming. However, He gave us signs that would occur beforehand and spoke about the importance of being watchful for His return and not being caught off guard. Although Jesus didn't provide as much detail about what would happen beforehand as our curious minds might have liked, He did give a couple specific and unmistakable signs that would precede His coming. He also stressed the importance of being faithful servants during His absence. Jesus conveyed short stories or parables to the disciples in the Olivet Discourse. In the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus essentially lays out the roles of some major players at the end of the age. Himself, faithful Israel, unfaithful Israel, and the church. Interpretations of what this parable means have varied greatly. Keys to unlocking this important passage are understanding the characters involved, the cultural wedding practices of Jesus' day, and what other prophetic scripture has to say about the end of the age. The second parable is known as the parable of the talents. This often misunderstood parable concerns how Jesus views faithful and unfaithful servants and what they can expect when he returns. Key to understanding this parable is determining what the talents symbolically represent. Here, We will learn that the faithful servants of Jesus will be put in charge of great things and be invited to take part in the, quote, joy of the Lord, unquote. Jesus's last comments during his Olivet Discourse concerned how he'll judge the inhabitants of the earth that remain at the end of the tribulation period. He uses the imagery of separating out the sheep from the goats. The sheep, representing those who have done good to the brothers of Christ, they end up inheriting a kingdom that has been prepared for them. The goats, on the other hand, get cast into a lake of fire. Better to be a sheep than a goat, in my opinion. The short stories Jesus used as examples serve to convey basic principles of the kind of behaviors that Jesus both does and does not value. However, we'll see that in context, these stories all pertain to specific groups of people. Before we begin looking at scriptures pertaining to the Olivet Discourse itself, in the next podcast, I want to discuss why it's extremely important for every Christian to understand the basics of Jesus' return and the end of the age. Then, since it's so often misused, we'll look at how Christians should utilize biblical prophecy. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.